Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 111. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, great story this week, and a song about fire-breathing mutant turtles, so we ought to just jump right in. Our story this week is called Frequent Flyer Miles by Greg Van Eekout. Greg's work has appeared in a number of places, including Asimov Science Fiction, Realms of Fantasy, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Strange Horizons. His novel, Norse Code, a contemporary fantasy novel about Ragnarok erupting in Los Angeles, whoa, hell yes, that's right up my alley, will be released by Bantam Spectra on May 19th. He keeps a website with links to some of his writing and blogs at writingandsnacks.com. The story is read to you, mostly, by story writer, teller, and editor Kat Rambo, who's written work for Asimov's Weird Tales, Clark's World, and Strange Horizons, and last week's Drabblecast. She also co-edits the critically acclaimed Fantasy Magazine, and you can find her website at kittywumpus.net. So without further ado, Frequent Flyer Miles by Greg Van Eekout. By the time my flight lands and I haul myself out of my middle seat, marveling that once again I've survived six turbulent hours on a diet of free peanuts and lemon-lime pop without having suffered even a single blood edema in my legs, I've completed my 200,000th mile of the year. So it's a landmark moment for me, very auspicious for a Wednesday. Once through the jetway, I check the monitors, unsurprised to find that my next flight's been canceled. A harried ticket agent sentenced me to at least a seven-hour layover at Phoenix Sky Harbor, which is really okay, because it means I'll have even more time than I'd planned to search. I check my phone messages, and then, after some time in the ladies' room to brush my teeth and give myself a once-over with wet wipes in the toilet stall, I head out into the concourse and start looking at faces. There's a specific face I'm looking for, round, with a chin just the right size to gently pinch with thumb and forefinger, a small mouth that can snap from a quivering pout to a brilliant smile in the space of a thought, a long, thin nose that doesn't quite fit the face, but in time may well grow into the sort of feature that could be described as elegant, and the gray eyes, solemn, like mine. This is a face that no longer exists. Brianna is older now, of course, and it's difficult for me to imagine how she may have changed. A police technician once digitally aged her and handed me a printout of a face I don't know. It seems less like a realistic future version of Brie than an unlikely made-up thing, a perversion. I keep the printout folded in my purse. A glum little girl, with her hair falling out of barrettes, drags a pink suitcase behind her mother's legs and I watch them go by. Bree has a pink Barbie suitcase, but Mark left it behind in her closet when he took her, so I don't know what she carries her things in. After several hours of trolling, my swollen feet scream, and it's almost time for my flight. I stop to grab a quick coffee and think wistfully about enjoying a nicely brewed roast from a steaming ceramic cup wrapped in my bathrobe. I'm living a paper cup life these days. The corner of someone's suitcase nudges my calf. Oh, I beg your pardon, miss. My mouth smiles at him, an old man in a brown tweed jacket and black slacks. His suitcase has rounded corners and leather straps, 
a style that suggests a more dashing age of propellers and stewardesses with smart hats. On second glance, he's not so much old as he is old-fashioned. I imagine he keeps a lovingly maintained Studebaker at home and does swing dancing as a hobby. How clumsy of me, he says, and I force a little more life into my smile and tell him not to worry about it. Then I'm off to my boarding gate. I do some work on the plane. It's not proper work, not like I used to do when I had a pretty decent thing going as an investment banker. Now I'm more like a professional juggler, moving money on my spreadsheet from column to column, figuring out what I can sell, how I can skim and borrow to keep me in plane tickets a while longer. I land next at Chicago O'Hare. From right outside the Wolfgang Pucks, I spot Bree struggling with an enormous cola. Absurdly, my first thought isn't, oh God, I found her. It's, good Lord, her teeth must be rotted black if that's what she's been drinking. I think my brain does this to me because it doesn't want me to get too excited. It's concerned about my emotional state, my brain is, so it plays little tricks to help me avoid the inevitable disappointment of finding that, upon closer investigation, the little girl is not, in fact, my daughter, but is someone else's daughter, the daughter of someone whose ex-husband did not abscond with his ex-wife's reason for living, as is the case now, once again. After a few minutes in the ladies' room to collect myself, I head back out into the concourse to keep searching. I have no idea where Mark is. I've gone through several private investigators to find out. I've got one on retainer right now. Mark himself was a private investigator and a very good one. The key to avoiding being tracked down, he once told me, is to keep moving. If law enforcement or my paid detective could give me any indication at all where Mark might be traveling, but cities are vast and the roads might as well be infinite. On the other hand, even the largest airport in the world is comparatively manageable. So it's airports I search. A suitcase nudges my calf as I sit up to a counter, chewing a stiff turkey sandwich. Oh, my apologies, miss, he says. It's the man with the old suitcase again, the swing dancer with the imagined Studebaker. I'm not averse to speaking to strangers. On planes, I'm a chatty seatmate, willing to talk at length to innocent victims who'd rather be listening to their iPods or solving Sudoku puzzles. I love your suitcase, I begin. It's got a real sense of style. His light brown eyes warm, and he takes a seat next to me and unwraps a burrito. Oh, it was pretty much a run-of-the-mill suitcase when I bought it, but I suppose everything comes back into fashion eventually. Sort of an odd thing to say. He's not much older than me, with only some shallow lines of weathering in his Mediterranean face and a few strands of silver in his black hair. He says it jokingly, though, and his smile is charming. I saw you earlier today. He says. At Phoenix. I believe I was clumsy with my suitcase then as well. That's right. You're a repeat offender. He nibbles the corner of his burrito, almost delicately, the convenient meal looking out of place in his graceful hands. It could be nice to be sitting across from him at a proper table with an actual tablecloth and an actual waiter eating actual food. But I've got a good view of the concourse and the passers-by from here. A woman across the way is leading a girl about breeze size to the bathroom. I slowly close my fingers on my knee. The girl is tired and upset, her feet dragging while the impatient mother pulls her along. 
This bright, loud frenzy is no place for a small child, but I try not to let myself get too far with indignation. I recognize that criticizing the parenting skills of others is an ugly manifestation of my jealousy. On your way home, I asked Mr. Studebaker. Oh, I'm always on my way home, if you think of a journey as circular instead of linear. Hmm. I sip my Coke, a little disappointed in his philosopher act. I'd rather just have a conversation with the guy, not have him try to impress me. On the other hand, if he were to ask me if I were coming or going, my answer might well be a no more than differently worded version of his. You fly a great deal, he says, more statement than question. It's the job. Oh, I understand that well enough. It's my burden as well. What is it you do? I travel. An annoyingly coy answer, but again, it would be mine as well. We spend the next 15 minutes making pleasant small talk. I learn he's originally from Jerusalem. He learns I'm from Dayton. I reveal that I'm an investment banker by trade. He tells me he's been a farmer, a blacksmith, a goat herd, a soldier, a prince, a slave, a miner, a sailor, a door-to-door -door salesman, a bank clerk, a factory worker, a cook, a janitor, and more things that he can count. I've been called Melmoth, he says, offering his hand. Or Ahash Verosh, Cartophylax, Jerusalem Sutari. Matathias, Butadeus, or sometimes Juan Espera Adios, or the Wandering Jew. He doesn't really give off the aura of a bullshit artist, but then a good bullshit artist doesn't declare his nature with a sandwich board. On the other hand, I've been flying for a long time spending as much time off the earth as on, confining my terrestrial hours to in-between places and paper cup realities. The world is not as tightly fastened down as I used to think. I'm Lynn, I say, and we shake hands. He takes another tentative bite of his burrito. It must be very expensive to fly as much as you do. I have some investments. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the other costs. Well, what about you, I ask him. How do you manage? Oh, you know, frequent flyer miles. Another little blonde girl goes by, nibbling a pretzel bigger than her head. One of these days I'm going to trade in my miles for a first-class upgrade instead of another free trip, I promise myself aloud. He folds his barely-eaten burrito away in its paper wrapper and regards me seriously with his warm, friendly eyes. I have a lot of frequent flyer miles. I'd be more than happy to share them. I understand that we're not talking about the kind of miles the airlines give you. This has nothing to do with credit card rewards. Thank you. That's very nice of you, but I doubt they're transferable. Oh, these miles are. I obtained them a long time ago from a man, well, Perhaps he was a man who could give me what I needed, and I think it's what you need as well. Twin girls with backpacks follow their parents down the concourse. I don't recognize the cartoon characters in their backpacks. I used to know all the cartoon shows Brie liked. I wonder if she still likes Sesame Street. Thank you, I say firmly, but no. He waves his hand in a little gesture of acceptance, then reaches into his coat pocket to remove a small, folded piece of paper. He smooths it out on the counter. 
The charcoal sketch is softened with wear, but the drawing of the boy's face is clear enough. It bears a strong resemblance to Mr. Studebaker. The drawing's not that old, actually. Nothing on paper lasts very long, so I redraw it every few years to keep the image fresh. He stares at it intently, as if recommitting it to memory, and then he refolds the paper and it goes back into his pocket. Do you have a picture of yours? Of course. My fingers go into my purse. They come up with an old photograph of Brie. This doesn't really look much like her, I apologize. He studies the picture. How has she changed? I find I can't lie to him. I don't know. It's been a long time. He nods. My offer of miles stands. The person who gave them to me showed me the secret. The ritual involves pictograms, some old words, some oils and spices. It might give you the time you need. How do you get the oils and spices past security? Very small perfume bottles, but I'm seldom on the other side of the security checkpoint these days anyway. So, are you interested? I look at him, say nothing, and then he understands. He smiles sympathetically. I see. He says. You have miles enough of your own. Yes. I had been flying for a very long time. He leans in like a sympathetic conspirator. You know, I'll never find my son. For people like us, the search doesn't stop, even after success becomes impossible. That's rather the nature of the curse. I know he's not trying to be unkind, but I still wish he would just shut up. Then why offer me your miles? His eyes are light amber and dry as Sahara sand. Because my son is dead. He's been dead for hundreds of years, but still, I can't stop wandering. Giving you some of my miles might shorten my journey just the smallest bit. I'm somewhat desperate to shorten my journey. I have to respect his honesty. Good luck to you, I say, getting up. He stands gentlemanly and gives me a little bow. And to you. We'll see each other again, I imagine. I imagine we will. All the airports in the world combined would still not make for a very large city. I check my watch and dig out my boarding pass, pleased to see I've got a window seat for my next flight, so I'll be able to look down over the black earth that stretches between airports. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. We've really got to catch up on some story feedback. It's been a while. Let's harken back to episode 104, The Food Processor by Michael Canfield. If you don't remember this one, it was the one about the food processor. Some people didn't get this one at all. Some people got it once they stopped trying to get it. Mr. Tweedy gave a thoughtful insight, saying, that was the most bizarre story ever. It certainly had parallels with the Greek origin myth. Uranus imprisoned his children underground until their mother gave them a gift, which Kronos used to depose him. Thus freed, the Titans emerged from their prison and changed the world. The details are all wrong, but the general sequence is there. An old order is overthrown, and a new one is created. 
I think that's what this is. I think it's the origin myth of a fictional culture presented on its own, without any context to clue us in. Interesting idea. Beth Peters said, I was surprised to find myself really enjoying this story halfway through. I think once I got into the fable vibe, it was easier to go with. Like others have said, it was a fun change of pace to hear on this show. Definitely one of the stranger that I've heard so far. Golden Rat wasn't a fan, saying, didn't like it. Didn't like the spineless mother, the freak show dad, the kids, anything about it. I'm probably not smart enough to pick up on the mythology, so I had no chance there. Aw, that's, that's not true, Golden Rat. You're, you're smart. The next week, we ran our doubleheader special on Mer Lafferty's pie stories, The Blueberry Pie and The Last Pie Hunter. This story garnered a lot of praise, but also sparked a pretty heated debate between pie and cake lovers, and a poll was even created. Pie won by a landslide, and that made me almost say screw you guys and quit this whole podcast, but I got over it. Poppy Dragon said, Pie-tastic. Then again, it's Mer, so I shouldn't be surprised that she came up with these two little slices of awesomeness. Delphed said, really liked this story. As a student of anthropology, the idea of looking at another culture was wonderful. It was set in a world where things just shouldn't be. Maybe a crazy alternate future where genetic engineering has run rampant. Spider plants, pies and cakes have taken very new forms. Societies crumbled and roving bands of egalitarian tribes hunt through the wild. And pie sex. Don't forget about that. Levantric Vantrashell of Lob said, Great stuff. I have to admit that I especially enjoyed the second piece, since cake won against pie in that one. In the immortal debate of cake versus pie, I'll choose cake every time. Hell yeah. High five, Levantric Shrell of Vlanch. Ah, screw it. We like hearing from listeners. Join our discussion forums and get in on the good times. There you can also submit a 100-character TwitFix story for our weekly TwitFix contest. The winner this week, by the way, is E.P. Moyer for Mouse's Sacrifice Hit the Big Time, which I just twat out to all of our friends. Ooh, is that really the right past tense for that? Be our friend on Twitter if you have it, and check out E.P. Moyer's 100-character story. Couple bits of business before we get a bartling. First, donations. We accept them. In fact, we need them to pay writers for their stories and to keep the show going. So be a pal if you've got a few bucks that you can chuck our way, or if you'd like to subscribe for a measly five bucks a month. You can find both options off our main page at drabblecast.org. And lastly, there's the business about us using a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can share this all you like, just don't change it and don't sell it. Which you can also do to this week's Bartle, which you'll find as a separate MP3 in the Drabblecast MP3 warehouse off our main page and linked in our show notes. Bartles are songs that I write for people who give us big donations. They give me some sort of topic or idea, and I wander the desert until the muse of madness inspires some sort of brilliant song, and then I record that junk and play it on the show. This Bartle is called Radioactive Runaways, and it's written for Eric Peters as a birthday present from his wife, Jeanette. Eric is an associate professor in the Biological Sciences Department at Chicago State University and teaches environmental sciences. He did his master's research in radioecology, which is the study of the environmental effects of radioactivity. And he's a reptile lover and proud owner of a box turtle and a tokay gecko. I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to write a lounge R&B tribute to both him and one of my favorite 1966 monster movies of all time, Gamera vs. Baragon, in which Gamera, the giant flying fire-breathing turtle, beats the crap out of Baragon, a pansy-ass lizard monster who shoots rainbows. If you like this song, you might also like my CD. Check out normsherman.com for more info. Well, hey, that's it for this week. We'll see you next Wednesday.
Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that they grow up way too fast. shoot laser beams he's got a japanese submarine in between his front teeth can you believe he used to be like a son to me my 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 they grow up so fast singing my 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 they grow up so fast i found you in a basin full of radiation a nuclear reservoir power plant station a sorry i tenderfoot terrapin swimming in trash bins brimming with uranium Transformation, total mutation Turtle sent by Satan to destroy every nation It's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Radioactive runaway Now you're knocking down cities No pity for the people of Tokyo You say it's payback time For all the sludge and slime Dumped in your water flow Oh, where do we go wrong? Where'd you get the plasma cannons hooked into your back? My, 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 they grow up so fast Singing my, 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 they grow up so fast Then suddenly behind you, another daikaiju Your old arch nemesis, Baragon He used to be a Tokay gecko back in the day But then came gamma rays and atom bombs Now he's bigger than an Amtrak Glowing spikes on his back with some kind of weird Rainbow laser beam attack My, 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 they grow up so It's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Those radioactive runaways Smoke clears away The cities smash to hell Barragon's been slain Beside him lies your shell I pray to God above But keep my eyes on the TV screen If you weren't an abomination You might still be here with me Cheers can be heard on the streets as survivors celebrate
it was a horrendous battle, and most of the city is demolished, but clearly the struggle is over. Waiting to incinerate the whole human race I turned off the TV with tears in my eyes Thinking about the good times and how they fly by And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast, those radioactive I saw jet propulsion rockets blast From a cavity in your ass They took you off the ground and up into the sky You never turned around you never said goodbye And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Those radioactive runaways